0: This is a beautiful, beautiful portion of scripture that is encouraging, um, uh, challenging, a little bit scary. And the theme of the entire letter, if you were to look in the entire first letter of Peter, the whole epistle, and it's a general epistle, so it's going out to everyone in all different countries, all different languages, all different cultures. These are people all over the world that have very little in common other than that they love God through Jesus Christ. They have come from different places, they've come from different backgrounds, and they are all like facets of a diamond showing God's glory. The other thing that they have in common is that they're all suffering, and the entire letter of Peter is about suffering and how you suffer well, and that that is not God's abandonment in many ways, God will provide everything you need so that he will receive all glory. He makes us dependent upon him. So the, the message today is from the last part of this chapter. And that is a very difficult thing is to pull a message out of something where there's like there, there's rungs of the ladder before you get there. So if you just review just a bit in verse 9, he's talking about salvation. He talked about the incorruptible um, heaven that we have, our inheritance that is undefiled and kept and reserved for us, Um, that our best life is not now. Our best life is when God is done with the sin that's preparing us to, to see him as everything. When we see him as everything here and then we realize that he is everything, we will be prepared to properly praise him. And so it said in verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvations of your soul. Now that's, that's pretty interesting. So when, when you look at your past, those of you who know the Lord, th- there is a time that you can absolutely know. I was different before a certain time. Now that time could be growing, kind of like the dawn, I don't know if anybody likes to have the lights turned on in the morning, like just, hey, get up, and you just turn off the lights. It's just too much too soon. The dawn is much an easier way, and I think a lot of us come to the Lord in that way, to where little by little by little, he becomes more precious to us. He becomes more uh, real, and we see ourselves more fully for who we are uh, as, as we do that. So there is a sense in which we were saved. There is a day that you can kind of point to, I I my, had my full knowledge of who I was outside of Christ, and I trusted him. And there has been a change in my life. And as that works into the current day, you can see that you are being saved continuously. God is, God is making you different today than you were. Um, you might not be very far, and you might be ashamed of how far you've gotten, but look behind you. You are far, you're far down the path. And there is a long way to go, and God will ultimately save you. So there is a current salvation, a past salvation, and a current salvation, and that said that it's the end of our faith. Our faith will one day stop. Love will never stop. Faith will stop. There will be a time that we do not need to trust because it will all be so uh, obvious to us uh, what the situation is, and our faith will become sight. Uh, in, in a future time. In verse 13, we look at this salvation and what effects it has, and he starts with the effects that it has on your theology. Now, you've trusted God in what you know. You know to turn away from yourself and know to turn away from your sin and turn to God, but you know very little about God. God has to teach you about himself, and so as you are currently being saved, That day by day, working in your heart, showing you Jesus, showing you the gospel, pointing you back continuously, um, popping the balloon of your pride every day. As God does that, you see God differently. You see God differently. You do not see God the same way. Your theology is continuously enriching and building and growing and strengthening and solidifying. To where you are now more capable of trusting God than you once were. And so this whole 13 is talking about be holy for I am holy. What a command. You are holy because God is holy and you are learning to live out Christ's life in you. That's something that happens in your life. That's one reason why we are not in glory now. We are in a progress of trust that God is doing something in our life. And there is a, it's a wonderful life. And despite our suffering and despite our pain and every problem that we could pile on top of each other, God has given us blessing upon blessing and shown us his faithfulness. And so 13 is talking about God. And not God in himself, but our response to God as, as God is becoming more God to us. He's becoming more of who he actually is in our, in our lives. When we get here to verse 22... We're now giving another uh, reason, another result of salvation. And that is that there is to grow out of your salvation a fervent, genuine love for each other. That there is something among Christian fellowship that's different from everything else. And it is, I do not believe it's well understood I think that there is a cultural idea that Christians are very nice and that they're outreaching and that they're loving people but this command is to love Christians. This command is to love one another and that one another is truly impossible because he's not saying be courteous, he's not saying be socially acceptable, he's saying love each other fervently. Love each other the way they need to be loved totally the way God loves and we'll see that that is an absolute impossibility. You cannot command me to be like God because if I'm not like God, if I have no capacity for that, a commandment only makes me wallow in pity because I can't do. So obviously this command is the main command of this passage. Primary is in verse 22, it said, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, this is not the only place in the New Testament. I'm sure that those of you who've read through the the Bible realize that this is repeated continuously. The one another passages are everywhere, almost every book. What do you do one to another to strengthen and to build up each other, loving each other sacrificially, you are doing it the way God loves. You are practicing being like God. You are having what you are learning about God and practicing it out in your life. And so what happens is that when when a command is given that there is no capacity, you have to look up immediately and go, I must have been given capacity or there won't be a command given to me. There must be a capacity for me to love like God or I can't be commanded to love like God. And this is what he's doing. All right. So let me first, before we unpack this passage, uh, let me pull uh, uh, Jesus' word to Peter because Jesus, Peter is writing something that was commanded to him. He was commanded to do something and then he writes it in his letter as he is writing to the world, to the Christians in the stretched out world around him. So in John 13, uh, verse 34, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and this is, this is the end. He dies the next day. This is the end of the, of the Lord's Supper on the last day of Passover, where, where he's going to be the sacrifice the next day. And he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you one love one another. Now, that already is scary. As I have loved you is how much you're to love. There is a, there is a To an extent, to the extent that I love you, I want you to love each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. So we see that Jesus commanded it and Peter is now commanding it. So something has been given to us that we are capable of a love that otherwise we would never have had. Now, there is lots of love that's natural to a person. There is the love of of attraction. Many people have experienced that. There's an instant just love that comes just like, wow, what a beautiful, what a this, what that, what a beautiful car, what a beautiful wife, that idea. There's love that just prompts from that. That's natural. That is something that all people would have in common. You don't need to be um, uh, saved in order to experience that. There is a a love of, of the people like you your clan, your family, your your people, okay? There's a love for that, that I would protect, uh, that I would even sacrifice myself for. And there are countless people that have loved like that. There is even the word, um, and the word here, uh, uh, to love your brother is actually Philadelphia. It's the word Philadelphia. It means to brotherly love, and that is an, an affection towards someone else even that's a little bit altruistic, to where I'm willing to give, I'm willing to sacrifice. There's lots of people that, for a good man, some would even dare to die. Okay, that's a natural thing. But when he says, love your brothers, and then he doesn't just say that. If he would say, love your brothers, I'd say, okay, got it. Because I would love it in whatever way I could. Okay, in whatever way is fine. I'll be nice to you. I'll be courteous to you. I'll never call you shut up. Okay, I'm nice. And that, that is what I think loving is. But he doesn't say that. He says, you would love one another with a pure heart fervently. Okay. Now fervent, you know what fervent is, is that idea of extreme, it's it's boiling water. Um, Fervent is really uh, an anatomical idea. It's the idea of like how far can my muscle reach? Like what's my extent of my reach? That's fervent. So stretching to the very last fiber of your muscle, that's how you're to love someone. And that kind of thing, when you stop in your tracks and go, okay, whoa, I'm to love someone like God loves, that means sacrificial, okay? Jesus gave himself for his church. That's how, that's how a husband is to love his wife, to that extent. We are to love each other fervently, and suddenly that becomes an impossibility. There's nobody that has that unless the life of Christ is in you being lived out. Suddenly now you are capable of, of doing something. So when the Bible gives a command and we think of the commandments, the law of God as being an Old Testament idea, the New Testament is full of commandments. Commandments that are binding upon us for all eternity. But the New Testament is kind. Now Peter especially. Peter, uh, Peter was a mess and he spoke before he thought and he was just, he was like me in so many ways. When you read Peter's letters, you couldn't even imagine it's the same person. He he doesn't act like the same person. His letters are kindness. He's that idea of like continuously supporting you as he's giving you command and then kind of making it soft so that you can fall against the walls. And so he never gives a command, and Paul is the same way, ever. Like, in fact, I just dare you, find a commandment in the Bible and now look at the verse in front. Look at the verse after. And what you'll see is that God has saying, here's who you are in Christ. Here's what the gospel has done for you. Here's what I provided for you supernaturally. Now do something totally impossible. Okay? And we already looked at the previous verse where it said, be holy as I am holy. All right, come on. Be holy as God is holy. That's a command. Okay? All right, either we're all going to be hypocrites and just decide that we're going to pretend that we did that, or... We're going to do what God has said we can do with his enabling. And it will take the rest of our lives in practice to do that. And that's what the church is for. We come together to stir up each other to love and to good works by loving each other actively uh, in real ways. Not squishy ways. Not sentimental ways. We love each other the way we really ought to love. So when you say, how are you? Stand there and wait. And that's uncomfortable because we have not been raised this way. Everybody's raised to be nice and courteous. There's no liar like a West Virginian. I promise. Okay? We're the nicest people. Get out of my yard. But smile and sweet. There's nobody like a West Virginian in terms of I'm absolutely closing down to you right now, but you won't know it because howdy, howdy, and you're as nice as you can be. Well, we've learned to do that from, from the smallest babies we've learned how to be actor, and we, we do not need to do that. As we love like Christ loves and we're ready, we're willing to say, okay, I'm going to love you the way you need to be loved. I'm going to love you by being consistent and faithful to you. I'm going to be loving by listening more than I speak. I'm going to love you in how you, what your real needs are. And truly, how are you expects an answer to someone who's loving you. And that is a contract you have to make with each other. You have to develop trust with each other because I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine. So, And you won't. You haven't. You've never done it. You've kept things private. You've kept things precious. But have you had somebody that you're willing, you know that they are godly. They might not be smart. They, not, they, might, not, they might be as ornery as you've ever seen. But their heart is towards God. And that you can trust that person with your precious things. And we, we are showing that the kingdom of God has come now. We don't wait to glory for everything. Right now, God is showing himself to be the king of this world. And he's doing it with us. And that is absolutely a laughing stock for most people. Most people is like, okay, right. He's the king of the universe and this is how he's showing it by these people? Yes, that's how he's showing it. So to love each other fervently is impossible. But let's see what Peter has given us from the gospel based upon the word of God that gives us what we need, okay? So let's look at together in verse 22, he says, "Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love." Okay? Now, instantly I don't like that verse. I have purified my soul by obeying the truth. I've done something. I've cleaned myself up. I've gotten a haircut and straightened up my life. Okay? Suddenly I did something, uh, d- done something so big that it's applaudable. I have purified my soul. So instantly, that almost, you know, even on my tongue, sounds like that's blasphemy. God is the Savior. God saves sinners. I didn't save myself. I don't straighten up my life, I don't reform by my choices. I don't decide what I'm going to do. I am trusting God to work in me. So obviously what I do when I read something like this, I stop and everything that I've ever read in the Bible now supports what I'm thinking. And I'm letting the scriptures hold my, hold my head while I deal with something that would otherwise be scary. Did I save myself? Well, I'd say absolutely not. But in some regard... I had to do something. Do you see? There is a response required to a sinner. A sinner must obey the truth. Or there is no connection with the truth. The truth is the gospel. Okay, you see in verse 25, the word of the Lord endures forever and this word which the gospel is preached by you. It's the gospel that you are trusting in. It's it's not your knowledge of all the kings of Judah in alphabetical order. It's the gospel that is... Everywhere in the scriptures that God has given to you, and as you've trusted that, you are trusting in the truth. And in that respect, you have purified your soul. You've participated. You've participated in that small way. Now, just so that Peter doesn't make you think that you did it, okay, now he gives you the command, which makes you even more wobbly because you're like, okay, I've done something and now I have to do something impossible. He then looks at 23. He said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. So he's saying the same thing. These two things are synonymous. So me having purified my soul is exactly the same thing as being born again. All right, now that's an easier picture because I can see that. In fact, that's the reason why it's used. That's the reason Jesus used it because it's obvious to us. We know what that means to be born I didn't participate in that. I didn't participate in my birth. Uh, it was not any of my choice. I woke up one day and I was a person. Like I didn't know what was happening. Um, I'm sure I had a bad day. It was, I, it was traumatic. But, but I got through it. But God <laughs> did it. God raised, took something that was not alive and made it alive. Now, that actually is a floor that I can stand on when I say I've purified myself. So if I have been born, being born again, then God has done something. Now, being born again is is totally crucial. It's the most necessary thing to understand because there is no person that is right with God unless they've been born again. So, but because you're talking in a because you're talking in an idiom, that's very hard. Like you're talking in a picture. Do you see? So what does that mean? If you totally need to know what that means, we need to know what that means now. If I were trying to explain this, the passage I would go to first, the first, and I'm sure it's in your brain right now, is Jesus was speaking once with Nicodemus about you must be born again. This is in John 3. Can you turn there and let's just look at the first few verses of John 3? Totally necessary as we look at what Peter is now commanding us to love each other. We have It's the foundation that we have to rest on as we're now attempting to love each other the way we should love each other, okay? So... Remember Nicodemus was a ruler, he was in the Sanhedrin, he was one of the leaders of the country. He was on the Supreme Court, he was the one who made the rules and he and enforced the, the rules. He was a Pharisee, very, very strict person, very, very, wanted to do everything by the book. And he went to Jesus by night, yeah, he was a kind of a weenie, a little bit of a weenie. He, he, he wanted to come to Jesus but he realized that was not very popular, So, but he came anyway. And so, this says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot come to see the kingdom of God. Interesting. It's almost like Jesus ignored him, that there's some polite things you have to say. Hello, hello, hello. Um, nice, nice, nice. You know, uh, say nice things about each other. Jesus immediately just cuts to the quick and says, Unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. So it was his greatest need and possibly the reason why he came. Why would he come to this rabbi that everyone else is calling a demon? Okay? He is seeing, I want to be right with God and I believe this man can help me. And so he said, You may not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, personally, I do not think that Nicodemus was a moron. Uh, What he seems to say is very moronic because he then says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter into a second time his mother's womb would be born? Okay, you know, either he he was being sarcastic or he was being uh, moronic, I'm not sure, but I really believe that he understands that they're talking about spiritual issues and they're talking in pictures because you can't talk about something spiritual when except by using pictures. There's no other way to do it. So he's basically saying, um, it's done already. I'm already established. I'm already who I am. How can I start over? How can I have a do-over? And that's a very legitimate question. How can I have a do-over? I've already messed it up. How can I see the kingdom of God if if this life is not good enough? If somehow this life was a failure and I get a big red X, how can I do again? How can I be born again? And Jesus said... Except a man be born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God right so the spirit i assume or the water i assume is natural birth but the spirit must be involved so let me try to understand the spirit of God or the spirit of God is God the holy spirit is it's God himself that takes my life and unites it with the living Christ Do you see what's happened? That's being born again. That is a life that I did not have before. That's a life that didn't exist before. That is not a different life. That is a completely new life. So what happened to me is that the life that I was living, I died. I stopped being who I was. I stopped having the condemnation that I had. All of it was gone, and now it's new. I have a new parentage. I have a new development. I have a new future. Everything is new because of what the Holy Spirit did in me. And then uh, it says in verse 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel when I say you must be born again. Okay? So if you're born of flesh, you are flesh, and you will behave like flesh. Whatever that is. You will behave according to the DNA that you are grow, that, that is part of you that you're growing into. If you're born of spirit... That is different entirely. And if you expect to be right with God, that is a necessary condition. So being religious doesn't help you. Being sincere doesn't help you. It, nothing helps you unless God's spirit does something. And then Jesus says something amazing. This is what I actually highlighted here, verse 8. The wind blows where it listeth. I don't know if you all speak King James. It blows where it wants to. It goes where it wants and you hear the sound thereof, but can't tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You can see the effects of the wind. You can watch the trees bend over, and you can see the leaves blow past, and you can see the, you feel it on your face, and you know that it's coming from here, but you can't see it coming, and you don't know where it went when it passed you. God is doing something on his own. It's his own choice, doing something in you to make you alive. Then, as a live person, he deals with you in a different set of ways. He deals with you as a son. He deals with you as his new creation, his treasured possession, his peculiar people. This is a new situation. This is, a, this is God's people, the people of God that he's doing, that, he, that now we understand what he's meaning. Nobody else, <laughs> else can understand. Like spiritual things mean nothing. They're, you're, you're, you can, I hear you talking, but I don't know what you're saying. It's that idea, it's a foreign language. And Jesus then says, uh, "Are you a master of Israel? like do you teach you're the teacher right? And you don't know these simple things? This is all from the Old Testament that that God is intending to do a work in you for you. It's a redemption work, and this is of course Jesus speaking. So so let's look at back at 22 and 23 and see that it's referring back to the same thing. Those born of the spirit is spirit, right? So um, it, says, it says, seeing that you've purified your souls of the through the spirit of an unfeigned love to the brethren, see that you want, uh, love one another with a pure heart uh, fervently. It's obeying the truth. So the faith that you have is based upon something solid. It's a rock-solid foundation. It's 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 the God's word. Remember, the truth is the gospel. So your responses to the gospel. When you go to verse twenty-three, it says, "Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible." And again, we're talking about the scriptures. So corruptible seed is how I was born the first time. Corruptible is something that can be corrupted, like. I don't know about you, but stuff's falling off of me and you're collapsing on the inside. I'm falling apart and we will continue until I pass out of this, this veil. So that corruptible seed will inevitably end in corruption. That's just the way it is. I'm a man. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's how it works. But he said, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, not the same way you were born the first time, but you were born of incorruptible. So incorruptible won't rot, won't end, permanent. Something that you can depend upon, something that is lasting, and that is who you are now. And then it says, not of corruptible seed but incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So it's this it's the word of God that has done something in you. The word of God is a book that is absolutely not a book. It's not a Ouija board. It's not a book of spells. The Bible is living. Do you see what it says? Living and abiding. It's permanent. It's permanent and it's alive. So when God wants to do something in the world, he does it through his word. He started the world by his word. He started the world by his word. He will end the world by his word and he maintains the world by his word. Everything that is in the scriptures is for us and it's trustworthy you can you can build your life on it you don't have to worry you can trust it and as a person does that then what's happening you've been you've been born again of incorruptible seed and those things that are incorruptible then start planting in you you will be incorruptible for that reason paul later says in corinthians this this corruption will put on him uncorruption and this mortal will put on immortality when you see christ it will change in a moment and this corruption, and remember, we've already seen the word corruptible before. Your inheritance is incorruptible. you That's the second time in this chapter he's talked about it. Something that you will never go away, will never sink into the pit. You, there will never be a day that God gets tired of us. I, I'm always worried, like, if you know me, you'll hate me like everybody else does. If God knew me truly, he would hate me. Because that's because I've learned my whole life that you hide and you act and you, you are make sure that you're a certain person for a certain person and you judge them up before you know what to say. Well, why, when, if we were to love each other with a fervent, unfeigned, that means unfaked love, what we're doing is we're doing a little, a little sampling of what the eternal kingdom will be, where there will be complete and total trust. I won't sin against you ever. You can look at me and trust me because I will never stab you in the back. I'll never hurt you on purpose and I'll never hurt you on accident and you will never do it. I don't care what the streets are made out of. I'll never sin against God. That is blessing and it's incorruptible and it's worth waiting for. It's something that I, my faith will end in. It's an, it is a living hope that causes this. James 1.8 says this, of his own will he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So so he has done something on his own for his own will, for his own want to, for his own reason and he, he used his word to do something. As he was talking to Timothy, he was saying, Timothy, I just love how that you grew up as a Christian. So few people in this generation did. But you were a little boy and your mother was a Christian and your grandmother and they taught you from earliest age. And as as uh, Paul was writing to him in, in 2 Timothy, he said, And you knew from a child the holy scriptures that were able to make you wise to salvation. The scriptures are, make, are able to make you wise unto salvation. It is...